You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Folks, recently I had the incredible privilege of sitting down with Ruth Haley Barden, the author of, among other books, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. She reached out to see if I'd be interested in having an ongoing conversation about the integration of systems theory and soul health on her podcast of the same name, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And uh, having recorded it, we thought it'd be really great just to put it on both of our podcasts. So yeah, this is primarily an interview that Ruth is interviewing me, but really the spirit of it was a conversation. I think there's so much great stuff that Ruth offers here that I uh, just thought I'd share these next several episodes with you as we wrap up this uh, season of MLA. So hope you enjoy. Well, welcome back, everyone. And I'm here again with Steve Cuss, and we're working with this topic of managing leadership anxiety, looking at it through the lens of systems theory. And in the last episode, we talked about family of origin and how we are shaped and formed in our families of origin and how the genogram can help us to look back at these transmissible patterns that get passed down through the generations and how helpful it is to do a genogram and to see these things very objectively because it opens up choice where we can choose to do things differently because now we've seen the way they have been done and we might even determine that we want to do it differently. So as we talk about leadership anxiety and the role of leadership in bringing a non-anxious presence and also in diagnosing and um, helping us to deal with anxiety as it moves through systems, it is true that we each have our own anxious false self patterns and beliefs. And because those patterns are formed within our families of origin, we thought that the next topic uh, for, for us would be the issue of family of origin and how our false selves and our false beliefs are actually shaped and formed within our early family experiences. So Steve, could you talk to us a little bit about how our false selves are formed uh, through these yeah. false beliefs? Yeah. And I think it might be helpful also to define Find the false self. It is a yes. phrase that we kick around a lot, but also, Ruth, I'll, I'll wait my turn as a gentleman, but I've got questions for you around the soul because I think the soul is another word that we all place meaning on that word, but what mm-hmm. actually is it? Yeah. Um, and to me, there's so much relationship between the false self and the soul. So, yeah, I'd be happy mm-hmm. to go first, but to me, the false self is what systems theory calls our chronic anxiety. It's based on what we think we need that we don't really need to be okay. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's, it, it, it's in chief competition with you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But I think more interestingly, it's primary competitor. My false self primarily competes with my identity in Christ, my belovedness. Mm-hmm. So when I am truly resting in, in the, into the grace of God... I'm not striving. I just am. And what's interesting is I'm still productive and I'm still leading. It's not like I'm sitting in God's hot tub, you know, and people are bringing me hors d'oeuvres. I'm Mm -hmm. still in ministry, but Mm -hmm. I'm not striving. But my false self says to me, um, you need every sermon to be the best sermon they've ever heard. And when it's not, Mm. you're not okay. And they're not okay. And I bet they're talking about you. It's, it's, It's this pressure to strive. And so I think theologically, the false self is what we depend on when we're not depending on Christ for our righteousness. 
And that's obviously a Bible word. So by righteousness, I, I really just mean our shalom, our well-being. I don't mean that we're like pharisaically right. But, but I can feel it. Like one of our earlier episodes, we talked about that, that visceral feeling of freedom. I can feel in my body when I've relaxed into the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And it's because mm-hmm. I can sit in an elders meeting and connect emotionally to those good men and women. And when one of them asks me a question that I don't know the answer to, my false self says, you must have the answer for you to be okay and for them to be okay with you and therefore for the world to be okay. But my true self says, no, Jesus died to free me from always having to have the answer. That's a tyrannous path. So I think in system series called chronic anxiety, I think in our Catholic saints, people like Thomas Merton and Thomas Keating, it's the false self. I think Paul calls it the flesh. Uh, he also calls it the man, the uh, altos, uh, not the altos, the anthropos in the Greek. I think Jesus calls it the self. I think mm-hmm. it's actually the same thing, used different words. So Jesus says we should die to it. Paul says we should be very suspicious of it, crucify it, be wary of it. Uh, the Bible authors talk about like it's this thing that takes over and grows if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I would define the false self. Um, Ruth, let's mm-hmm. put you on the hot seat. How would you, how would you define it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think that, you know, the false self is, is formed early. The little human being comes into the world as a vulnerable self. And, you know, the world is not a perfect place. None of us are born into perfect families. And so that little vulnerable self begins early on creating coping strategies and coping mechanisms to get their primal needs met. So I wanted to push back a little bit and say, because I think I know what you're saying, but I want to maybe see if we can say it a little bit differently. I really like the definition. It's formed. The false self is formed out of thinking that I need something that I don't need. Maybe we could nuance that a little bit and say there are these primal needs that we all have as human beings for safety and security and survival and esteem and affection and approval and agency or power and control. We do need those. But early on, we get them in our own human ways. We develop these human programs. That would be Keating's definition of the human programs for happiness, safety, security, power, agency, and control. When the self is not relying on God, we find our own ways to get it. And then as we are called deeper and deeper into the spiritual journey, into the true self, the true self is able to rely on God to get those primal needs met and to know in any moment that I am relying on God, I don't have to work hard to get my needs met because I am safe and secure and I have affection and esteem and approval and power and agency in God, you know? Mm, Yeah, Um, that's really helpful. Yeah. yeah. So I love this back and forth with you about this because false self is a really important concept. Yeah. To fully understand, yeah. I think, as we have these conversations. Yeah, when my sister turned 21 in Australia, the 21st birthday is a really big occasion. It's mm-hmm. almost like a bar mitzvah, even in yeah. a secular uh-huh. situation. So we had a house full of people and catering and the whole deal. And I, as her younger kid brother, I was 17, uh, my job was to give a speech. And mm. I'd never really done mm-hmm. any public speaking before. And I was a very insecure, unsure kid, even at 17, get up and give a speech. And I absolutely, it, you know, in stand-up, comedy language I killed ah. I, I killed I just nailed the room people are laughing mm-hmm. my sister led me to Christ so we have a, a deep mm-hmm. affection for each other and I was expressing my love for her but also telling these funny stories uh, to the point where I, I kind of stole the show I overdid it oh and, yeah 
but what happened afterwards is I made an agreement with myself. It was a very subconscious agreement. I don't remember making this agreement, but mm-hmm. it was, hey, that felt good. Let's find a way to get in front of people and make them laugh again mm-hmm. or wow them with my words again. So it's no great surprise that I'm a preacher, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, and I'm not suggesting that I'm a preacher because of my false self alone. I also think I was called into the ministry, but it is interesting that every week that pulpit lures me. Am I up there for the sake of the Lord or am I up there for the Steve show? Mm-hmm. There's something about pastoring that breeds narcissism. Yes. Because every week people staring at me 30 minutes and I'm moving them or making them laugh. So that would be a tangible example of like, that's a fairly late false self agreement as a 17 year old. A lot of them are made earlier. But it was as real as could be. And then what happens, I love what you were saying, Ruth, about we really do need affection and affirmation. That's true. We're not an island. But what I've noticed is when I'm living for my false self, it's an, it's an unsatiated need. Yeah. So even if the sermon was fantastic, then the next week I'm under more pressure. But when I'm actually living where Christ fills my needs, I can offer my gift of speaking without any need in return. Like it really is for me a tac- tactile experience between like the, the saltwater drinking of my false self, the tyrannous grip versus being able to operate out of my belovedness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be one like tangible way I notice my false self because it's still alive and well mm-hmm. in my life today. It's not like, like we were saying in an earlier episode, I've not, we've not graduated mm-hmm. from any of this stuff. It's definitely a journey. Yeah. Well, it's and the question really is is who am I relying on for those things that are legitimate human needs, which is I think what's so helpful about Father Keating's writings is that um because they are legitimate human needs, we do need to get them met from somewhere. But the question mm-hmm. is who am I relying on? Am I relying on my old my own old false self programs or am I able to abandon myself to God in this moment? So one of the practices for me around speaking um, is, am I able to walk away and like, rather than standing at the back of the room to take the accolades, can I walk away and entrust the outcomes to God? That's right. That's a, to me, that's a way of separating from um, the false self and the true self. That In, the, in my true mm-hmm. self, I can give my best and walk away and trust God with the outcomes. In my false self, I might need to get a lot of affirmation to know how it went. You know, that's a very, it's a, I think a Dallas Willard uh, measurement, right? Is, is leaving outcomes to God is yes. kind of a way to, to test, test mm-hmm. how you're doing. What's your take, Ruth, on quantity? I also find it helpful to think through the false self through quantity. But here's what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. I think we all know somebody who needs incessant validation oh, yeah. when they do good work. So, uh, you know, you're really challenging us to say, wait just a minute. We all need affirmation, but still, like if how much affirmation and how incessantly do you hunt for it, it does become a quantity game. What's your take on that? Oh, you know, I think that's a really important question in our current culture because, you know, the the social media is set up to give us all the, you know, the likes and the hearts and the views. And I'm afraid that social media in particular sets us up for there never to be enough. You know, that that no amount of views and hearts and likes are going to 
ever be enough if we set ourselves up to keep getting those and looking at them for, uh, I don't even know. I mean, I just think it's very, very complicated right now. And there are even physically the dopamine hits that come like there's a physical addiction in our culture now to the dopamine hits that come from likes and hearts and views. Which was built into social, like intentionally built built into social media. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's an important question. I don't even know the answer. I don't think I know the answer. And, um, and to pile onto it, the other thing I've noticed the false self does is it banks and spends it. So if I mm-hmm. get 15 likes, I bank and spend those likes. And then the next time I post something, I need at least 15 likes. Exactly. That's right. That's the other. I think the one way to measure the false self and the true self is it feels to me that the, the true self, you do end up relaxed in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And the false self always keeps you on that treadmill of striving. And I, I do think you can feel it. Uh, you mentioned Father Keating. Um, he has this wonderful um, story. I'm trying to remember the book I read it in, but uh, he talks about the guy that used to be able to drink people under the table and then he became a monk at Thomas oh, Keating's yes. Abbot. And now that's he can right. fast people under the table. He's mm-hmm. just that's exactly right. And that's him. Like com- he's describing himself. After he tells this story, he said, and that person is me. Oh, you I, know? I must have missed <laughs> yeah. that thought. Yeah, because I just read that again recently because Father Keating's work is something I go back to again and again just to keep reminding me of what's real, you know. I, I really regret, he just lived, he lived several hours away from where I live. I really regret when he was living that I didn't drive down and try to meet with him. He's such a yeah. a giant. But, but Ruth, if we're talking about the false self, we also need to talk about the soul. How do you define the soul? And then I'd be interested to hear from you on childhood formation and the soul. Yeah. Well, from, you know, to me, the soul is the part of us that is most real. It's the part of us that existed before we were brought forth in physical form. From a New Testament point of view, it is the place where God is present to us. So Romans 8 talks about the fact that God's spirit witnesses with our spirits about things that are true. And from that place, we cry out to God. So, you know, God tells us who we are in that place. And from that place, we cry out to God as our Abba Father. You know, I I don't believe that we can lose our salvation, but I think that we can lose our connection with the part of us that is most real. And that at different moments, we can be, you know, in touch or less less in touch with the part of us that is most real, the place where God is present to us. And that is the authentic self, as we've been created by God and as we are being redeemed by Christ. That is the soul of who we are. I've not done much thinking about the relationship between the false self and the soul. So I'm, I'm quite curious about this. Mm-hmm. You, you write about losing your soul. Jesus talks about mm-hmm. the man who gains the whole world and loses his soul. I, I've always read that passage one way, and I think I've mm-hmm. been reading it in a limited way, which is some kind of eternal, I mean, I was raised in a church that believed in eternal damnation. So that's the way I read that passage. But you write about it much more, um, casually, like you can misplace your credit card kind of idea is mm-hmm. one of the things you write about with your soul. So when you lose your soul, is that when you're, you're living for your false self? Is it that simple? What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I think when we lose the, you know, we lose our connection to that, which is most real within us, which is the place where God's spirit witnesses with our spirits about things that are true. And we live out 
of that place. We live out of our relationship with God, which is the authentic self, I think, is the self that's living in right relationship with God and is being redeemed by God and is living as the self that God created us to be, you know, that is that is the soul and that the soul exists beyond external definition, you know. I think the soul is a deeper reality than our personality structures mm-hmm. and that the false self is a construct. I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about Richard Rohr in particular. He talks about the false self as just a construct, that it's not even real. It's something we've constructed around the authentic self to keep the authentic self safe before we knew any other way to do it. And that it's only a construct, which is why when we die to the self, the false self, we're dying to that which is not even real in the first place. Like a husk, you know, like the husk of a corn cob. It's not even, it's not real. It doesn't have worth, you know. So, you know, I don't mean to be casual about it when I talk about losing a credit card. I think my point is, is that the soul is so much more significant than the credit card, but we have less panic when we have a sense of having lost connection with our souls. You know, our credit card is more important to us than a sense that I have lost my connection with God within me, you know, the place where God's present to me. And I'm living from someplace else, from some other reality, because I've lost touch with the truest aspects of who I am in God. And I think the soul is our, is our life hidden with Christ in God. I mean, biblically yeah. and theologically from a New Testament point of view, um, it is our life hidden with Christ in God. That's the authentic self. And as it's being redeemed by Christ and by Christ's work for us. And, and, and in my journey in this, I've been trying to pay hyper attention to how it physically feels. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes the challenge in the church, right, is we can say these things, but it's, it's too conceptual for people. And they're like, well, mm-hmm. how do I do that kind of idea? And it's not that we can manufacture an engagement with God. All I know is, in my language, you know, you talk a lot about striving. I know you also use language of like letting go of your grip. Mm-hmm. It is, there is a releasing. What I know, Ruth, is, is when I'm relaxed into the grace of God, I can physically feel free. Mm-hmm. But I can physically learn to feel in my body when I'm striving, when I need something I don't really need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting to pay more attention to my emotions. As much as I write about emotions, I'm def- my default is to not be very aware of my emotions. Mm. What do you do? How, how do you know when in the moment, like on Wednesday at 10 o'clock, you're, you're relaxed into your soul with God versus your false self? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I definitely too have gotten better over time at paying attention. To me, it, you know, we mentioned the body a couple, maybe episodes ago, but that for many people who are in tune with their bodies, the first place you might feel the fact that you're in the grip or you're stuck is a visceral experience of tension or tightness, you know, in the gut, or there's, there's just uh, physical visceral, I will say visceral sensations that yeah. alert us to the fact that we're caught and that we're stuck or that we're on a tread or that we're on a treadmill, and that as we get more and more able to just be present to our bodies, and I believe that God has given us our bodies as almost like discerning tuning forks, you know, discernment tuning forks. You know, in in Deuteronomy 30, God says, I've given you the choice between life and death, now choose life, and it's not across the ocean that you should go get it, it's not up in the heavens that you should have to go get it, it's actually in your heart and in your mouth for you to observe. In other words, it's in your body, I've given you your body, as a tuning fork, 
as a way of recognizing. And then if I can pay attention to what's happening in the body, then I might be able to attach an emotion to it. Oh, it's a fluttering in my stomach, but what it really is is anxiety and worry, you know. Um, or, oh, I'm feeling a tightness in my chest, but really I'm feeling very angry right now, you know, and, and the emotion is second. The first thing that happens is I'm able to identify something happening in the body, yeah. a way in which I'm holding myself tight versus, yeah. like you said, being open and available to the moment. And then if I can if I can stay present to what's happening in the body, then I might be able to attach an emotion to it. And then I might be able to ask myself, you know, what's what's going on here? Am I trusting God or am I trusting my own old patterns for keeping myself safe and secure and feeling approved of and all of that sort of thing? So that's, that's sort good. of how it goes for me. So body first, and then that leads you to your emotion and that leads you down to your belief system. Yes, and to the awareness point, of what's going on here, you know? Yeah. And then at that point, I think you're ready to do some of that work of now that I know my beliefs. I, I think this is the thing, Ruth, is, is like to this day, I still operate out of dozens and dozens of false beliefs. Even though I'm aware of this theory and I teach it, it doesn't make me immune to adopting false beliefs that show up all the time. And that's what mm -hmm. excites me about false self work is there's always an invitation to come and die and uh, it's hard work the most important lesson I've learned is to be patient with myself at least as patient as God is with me I think yeah. a lot of us another way we strive is we expect more spiritual progress through our own effort I, I, I'm always wary of people who are trying to be like Jesus so I'm always encouraging people to do more dying and less mm -hmm. trying yeah you talk about the fact that leadership, because maybe now let's focus on leadership a little bit. You talk about the fact that leadership anxiety is actually generated by the false self, yeah. which you would say is made up of false beliefs. So can you talk about leadership anxiety and how the false self is involved with that and how beliefs sort of feed in to the reactions and the reactivity of the false self? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I think we're, I think you've actually already laid out for us a really good model is like it begins in our childhood where we're powerless we're having, mm -hmm. we're trying to navigate a, a world and i i just, just want to say we've talked a lot about childhood ruth on this and the previous episode i just want to remind our listeners it's not about blame and it's not about being like i've had some people say well everyone like you, this is the way it is it's just a, a real fact that children are born into an adult world and it's difficult and therefore you bring your childhood experiences into your adulthood just want to keep reminding us of that. When it relates to leadership, we have all these false beliefs about ourselves, about our organizations, whatever it is we're leading. And uh, a lot of us think it should be further along by now. I've, I've gone through this last year. After 16 years of being a lead pastor, I handed uh, leadership of our church to another lead pastor. And a lot of what I felt in that early transition was grief and regret. Just, oh man, I thought I'd be handing over a, a, a smoother operation than the mm -hmm. one I'm handing over. And of course, I was handing over a post-COVID church. So we were mm -hmm. a limping church post-COVID. Finances yeah. were down and attendance was down. And But what came up in me was a lot of false self through that process of, if you were a better leader, we would be further along. That would be mm -hmm. an example of false self. You know, early in our church, we were a young struggling church plant when I came in 2005 my false self then looked like, if I'm a good preacher, this church will grow numerically. And mm. then catalyst leadership will call me and ask me to speak on a stage. 
so that I can tell them how I did it. And then on that stage, I will get up and say, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And I will look humble to gain even more accolade. That would be uh, a, a perfect example of the false self that I constructed as a leader. That all came down to preaching pressure for me, work ethic. Um, and what I, what I try to do with people is just ask, well, where's the good news in this belief? Because, because the actual true gospel is good news and all these other beliefs are bad news. And that helps me to tell the difference. Like, is this from the Lord or is this from myself? But that early church pressure I put myself under, there was not a lick of good news in it. Mm. Um, and even last year, now that I've had more experience with this work, I was quite caught off guard by um, my regret. I was not prepared for it. And I, I, what's going on here, Lord? And it was my reputation that was attached. Mm. What if this next pastor comes in? I've now published a book. I'm the, I'm the guy that's known as he's built a healthy organization. What if the next pastor comes in and says, this isn't healthy, this is toxic. Mm. Um, my reputation's on the line. My future income is connected to that. All of these absurd, exaggerated catastrophes. And that's another way I measure false self is I tend to catastrophize a future that um, is doomed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, I think, how it shakes it into leadership. And so leaders find that every meeting and every decision they make is way too pressurized where they have to get it just right. So then how do leaders move or how do you as a leader, when you see those false beliefs functioning, because you're describing anxiety that comes from false beliefs and especially the beliefs about what it looks like and what it means to be successful. Right. Um, And the pressure that that creates. So what do you do for yourself in those moments when you recognize that the false self is at work through these beliefs, these false beliefs? Is it as easy as just changing your mind? I mean, is it, is it just as easy as telling yourself something else or the, uh, what is this? Uh, who's the guy on Saturday Night Live that does the daily affirmations? That oh, guy? yes. I'm good enough Stuart. and dag nabbit people like me. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that no, was I so uncomfortable, think... wasn't it? Because it was so true. It was. It was very close to the truth. <laughs> no, I, I do think, um, I, I, I think chronic anxiety wants to keep us on the treadmill of more of the same and try harder. Mm-hmm. I do believe chronic anxiety is itself a false gospel. So mm-hmm. I think, okay, once you recognize I'm living a false gospel and the truth sets me free, I think that's the motivation that I need is, is Jesus is always trying to free me. You know, we're recording this not long after Palm Sunday. And I personally find it fascinating that when Jesus was doing his triumphal procession into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that was the same time that Pontius Pilate was doing a procession from Caesarea Philippi mm. into Jerusalem. And a lot of what Jesus was doing wasn't just fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He was also kind of mocking Roman power. He wasn't on this big horse with an entourage. He was on a foal of a donkey with a bunch of tax collectors and prostitutes around him. Like, and, and it mm-hmm. occurs to me So it was a parody. It was almost like a parody? It really was. Mm-hmm. The way I preached Palm Sunday yeah. is it was street theater. It, Jesus mm-hmm. was performing street theater. And he was making fun. Oh, interesting. He was making fun. And mm-hmm. the other thing that was interesting is because uh, I'm on a bit of a tangent here, Ruth, but I get all excited about this. Because it's in the Bible, we think Palm Sunday was this giant festival. I, I assure mm-hmm. you, it was 5% of the time in the budget <laughs> of Pontius's 
mm-hmm. festival. It was the small, small operation that didn't last very long, but it still changed the world. And what I'm interested, my point being, I think our true self is empowered by bottom-up power. So Jesus' power, divine power, comes underneath us and releases us. It, it activates us or it empowers us to be fully human. And I think every other power, Roman Empire power, false gospel, it comes on top of us and it oppresses us and pushes us down into condemnation and shame. So I think the sooner you can recognize when you're living for a false belief, the more motivated you are to then give it to God. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, I, I in prayer, hand my belief to God. I name it, mm-hmm. I confess it. And it's yeah, like, there Lord, it is again. I'm in the group yep. again. Yep. And then one thing I'd like to throw back on you, Ruth, is, you know, with your transforming community, so much of your work is done, not just me and Jesus, but it's me and mm-hmm. a trusted group and yeah. Jesus. I think that's a critical piece. Like you've even written about, if I could just confess to God, that's something, but mm-hmm. it's when I, the nitty gritty of confessing to humans. Why is it that we get more spiritual power when we confess it to a human in a trusted group than just confessing to God? Because I found that to be true as well. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on there? Why is that the way to go? Well, I think for one thing, it's, you know, this, as the scriptures say, it's healing. You know, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. And so there's a kind of healing that takes place. I also think that when we name things out loud, we are led towards a, a kind of freedom where we're no longer carrying the burden of of our sins and patterns all by ourselves in this dark place. But it's a way of bringing it into the light. And of course, darkness is dispelled by light. Mm-hmm. So bringing our sin out into the light of community just dispels it. It's really stunning how that happens yeah. to me. It's very, very counterintuitive because we're so used to holding these darker elements of ourselves in shame. And many times we don't realize the power of, of how light can dispel darkness until we actually try it once. Yeah. And even though it might have been hard to do, and sometimes we have a, we do have a, a confession service that is part of our sixth retreat in the Transforming Community Experience, which is an expression of corporate confession where people have been getting in touch with their darker patterns, their besetting sins, and then have an opportunity to name it in the, in the group and to have the group respond in a very loving way. And it's some, I've, I've never seen people tremble and get tearful as they do in that service when they're getting ready to say that thing that they've never said out loud to anyone else before. And they're getting ready to do it in a group. And people are scared, but they want those words that the community is going to give them, you know, um, the words of love and almost an absolution. Yeah. Um, and the service itself is very somber. There's a certain weight and gravitas to it. But once people do it and you feel a little raw with it, people walk out of there with a level of freedom that is completely unexpected to them, that they could have never predicted. It still surprises me what what people risk in that service, what they're willing to say, but then how they walk out tender, vulnerable, but free and and less weighted down. So I think there's there's healing and there's lightness that comes in making these confessions. What is it that you're in that group, you're having that confession service, the first person to name it, uh, it's, is it is it because they're exposing, are they afraid that no one else can relate? 
it's a vulnerable thing. They're exposing something, and then everyone realizes, man, we're all in the same thing together. Um, no, I don't think it's that as much as it is many people have never said out loud the kind of things because we don't have pe- people are not naming a specific behavior as much as they're naming a darker pattern, mm. you know, so and we and, you know, we've had some teaching on the Enneagram. We've also had some, you know, other kinds of teaching as well. But, you know, like like people will confess. I confess to the ways I wound my life, the life of others and the life of the world by powering up on people. And always needing to be in control by all by being so dramatic, you know, and always subjecting people to my emotional drama <laughs> by needing to be seen as successful and deceiving people sometimes in my need to feel successful. I mean, they're naming up a, a darker pattern and what they're naming. There's a weight to it that's even more than the words can carry. You know what I mean? Because they're naming something that God has revealed to them that has really wounded them and the life of others and the life of the world. So I think it's more of the saying out loud, something that you've never maybe stated out loud before. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Kurt Thompson to name things is to tame things. Yeah. And um, then, uh, you know, exposing it to the light and then to receive the love that comes back. And we give the community the words to say, and Mm. they're beautiful words. May God forgive you. Christ renew you. The spirit enable you to grow in love and to have those words spoken into your most tender, vulnerable moment. I mean, I don't even know all that that happens in those moments, but it happens. The Holy Spirit is working in that space and there's a kind of healing. And we know people who make phone calls right away to their loved ones and confess to their loved ones the way that they're aware that their behaviors have hurt their friendships and their marriages and their intimate relationships. And so you're, you're naming a, a pattern versus a behavior because now you're in touch with the darker pattern of your life that you maybe have not ever named before. Maybe you've never seen it either, you know? So we're talking about false self and soul, and you've introduced the word now, sin. It's mm-hmm. interesting to me that, so, that, that you're very comfortable talking about sin, but a lot of people simply do see it through the lens of morality and no other lens. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the way you mean that word, no, though. No, it's you, not. What, how do you mean that word sin? Thank you. Thank you for clarifying it. Because I rarely use the word sin, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only in the context of this kind of conversation that I'll ever even use the word sin. And right. there are many other things that I might say, uh, ineffective patterns. But in this case, sin is the, is that place where I rely on myself and on my own false self-programs rather than relying on God for what I really need. I try to secure my own safety and security and survival and affection and approval on my own terms. Those human programs that I developed early in my life to get what I think I need, rather than relying on God and rather than abandoning myself to God. That's what I'm talking about here when I use the word sin. And that wounds people. It wounds myself and it wounds others and it wounds the world. Which is how you know it's sin. That's it's interesting yeah. in you know, in Romans my favorite thing about the book of Romans is that Paul, when he talks about sin, it's a noun, not a verb. So it's not something we do in Romans. Mm-hmm. It's a condition. It's a condition that we're in. Yeah, we must be rescued from, you know, who mm-hmm. can rescue me from this body of death? Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Time is really going. But can I, I want to ask you one more question. And that is, how do these, can you say a little bit more about how systems theory and how identifying this actually helps us in our leadership. 
Good. To, to know these things. How does this help me in my leadership? Good. And, you know, this might even be a helpful recap at this point, but mm-hmm. the, the way systems theory helps is if it's basically paying attention to the spread of anxiety and you always begin with the mm-hmm. spread of anxiety in you. Yes. Then once you've stopped and mm-hmm. paused and considered yourself, you very quickly discover, as, as you laid out for us, Ruth, where is it in my body? What's my emotion? But now what's my core belief? So mm-hmm. systems theory, I think, gives us a, a conduit to get yeah. down into our deepest beliefs. I, I love what you just modeled for us with these people confessing these patterns of behavior. That's really what systems theory is interested in is predictable recurring patterns. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll do a future episode, I think, where we really dive into how to notice predictable recurring patterns. But it's predictable that when I'm walking into an elders meeting, I'm tempted to always know the answer. That's just predictable about me yeah. based on childhood and false self. And, and and so now I've got this really powerful tool because I can die to it. I can walk into the elders meeting before I walk in. I can say, Lord, you know this about me. I'm going to give you this. But I can also, to, to your point, say to the elders, I want you all to know I'm really working right now on not mm-hmm. always having the answer. That's right. Uh, because I have this temptation in me mm-hmm. and it's a pattern in my life. That would be confession. I think this is really where a lot of people get stuck in their spiritual walk. You know, in your life, Ruth, you kind of laid it out in your 30s where you came to the end of yourself. This to me is what's so exciting about this whole field is it it invites you to keep coming to the end of yourself, which is death, Mm -hmm. and therefore keep experiencing resurrection um, on the other side. So I think that's where system theory helps. In this field, it's mostly the patterns in myself. I'm not really diagnosing false self in other people. That's, That's holy right. ground. But if I just keep working on it in myself, you know, we hinted at an earlier episode, what the magic of systems theory is if somebody else is irritating me, but I'm working on myself, it's entirely yes. possible that by changing myself, their behavior will change. Exactly. And that's Um, that taking responsibility, which we're going to talk about in the next episode, that we're going to talk about self-leadership and how we take responsibility for ourselves versus blaming other people for whatever it is that's going wonky. Well, I love the idea that in in this, the one chapter in your book, in chapter two, I think you talk about how anxiety can actually become a gift and not a curse. Yes. Which I thought that was a wonderfully redeeming idea. That yes. anxiety, which feels very uncomfortable, can actually be a gift and not a curse. Can you just say one more time how it becomes a gift and not a curse? Oh, it's such a gift. Yes, that's, I, I'm glad you asked that because um, it, I now use it as an early detection system. Mm-hmm. Uh, anxiety becomes the evidence that I'm not relaxing into Christ. Yeah. And so to me, the metaphor I use is like a tornado warning. Mm-hmm. The siren goes off and that says, hey, hey, this thing's going on. So rather than me trying to get rid of anxiety, which will just make me more anxious, I invite it in and I use the number one power tool to diffuse anxiety, which is curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably at this point that I should confess that my wife is a therapist and I've learned so much from her. She wow. has this training called Parts of Self. She yes. became a therapist a few years ago. It's a late mm-hmm. journey for us been wonderful for both of us and and she has taught me i i'm not trained in this but just colloquially she'll talk about the parts of self and she'll use curiosity what's going on in me what what that part of me that's full of condemnation what what does that condemning part of me need 
what does that little boy in me need? And it's just a way to pause. And then once you've gotten off the treadmill, now you can discover God's right here. I thought I was by myself, but God's actually here. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can now work with God and ideally a trusted group. Um, that's that's kind of how it becomes an asset instead of a liability. Mm-hmm. Well, in a practice that comes to mind, like if you, I love this emphasis on curiosity that comes through in the way you talk about these things. So if we begin with curiosity about what's going on in me there, and then this practice, you know, that's the other side of the coin of centering prayer is welcoming prayer. Yes. Then in the midst of our curiosity, then we welcome the spirit into this place to lead us in some new and everlasting way or some new and life-giving way. Um, and I think that's, those are the, the kind of the movements in practice right there is that, first of all, we notice it, we become curious. And then as we have some understanding of what's going on, we welcome the Spirit of God into that place. And we welcome the Spirit to show us our choices. What other choice do I have right now versus giving in to the little boy or the little girl who didn't get what she needed? And how can I rely on God here versus relying on my own human programs. Oh, I love that idea. That does. Now that really sounds like a gift. That is a gift. It's the gift of choice and being guided by the Holy Spirit in a more life-giving way. Amen. Friends, if you're listening to this in May or June or anytime around there in 2022 or afterwards, then the Calm Aware Present Journal is available for pre-order. Uh, we're placing orders in May and then in June. You can go to www stevecusswords.com and depending on when you click on it that'll either link you to the kickstarter campaign for pre-orders or if you're a little after that it'll link you to the capable life page where you can place your order we'll be delivering journals in august as we've been saying over and over everybody needs an intentional proven path and the karma Aware present journal is a 12-week journey giving you a new tool each week as well as daily reflection questions midweek pause and then an end of week reflection to help you lower reactivity and increase connectedness. So if you want to know more, go to www.stevecuswiz.com and you can click through to place a pre-order for your Calm Aware Present Journal. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.